Mac Power Users, Episode 352, Workflows with Ian Bird. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside my pal, David Sparks. Hello, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you doing? Are you recovering from Turkey Day? I am uh, slowly but surely trying to recover, even though as we record the show, it don't tell people. Are we supposed to tell people it hasn't happened yet? Well, you just did. I know. <laughs> we sometimes pre-record these shows when there's a holiday or when we have a, an extra special guest. Um, and we are very privileged to have Ian Bird with us uh, today, who's gonna got some great workflows. He is a recovering teacher. <laughs> is that fair to say? Yeah, um, that's definitely fair. Yes. Um, but now teaches teachers about using technology and doing all sorts of fun things um, with his iPad and his Macs and other technology. So we're, we're looking forward to talk to you about that, Ian. Thanks. It's great to be here. Just to, uh, just to follow up on that a little bit, Ian and I met at a five by five meetup years ago. That's right. In L.A. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Ian's specialty is gifted and talented children in elementary school. So he was the guy who helped the the really smart kids. I ne- I never would have been in any of your classes, by the way. I'm oh. I'm certain of that. But <laughs> but but uh, but he did leave a few years ago. He he uh, has an independent spirit and started writing about how to teach these kids better and giving seminars on it. And it eventually turned into a career for him. He's at birdseed.com, B-Y-R-D-S-E-E-D.com. Lots of teachers are fans of Ian's and he helps them out. And uh, he does some other cool stuff with video and, and media that we're going to talk about through the show. Uh, he's a speaker and uh, and sells some cool stuff, but he, he's just also a really cool guy and a nerd like the rest of us. So so it's really nice having you on the show, Ian. And um, I guess before we get started, it, you know, we always do a little bit about that nerd cr- credential. You know, when you start out, <laughs> uh, just for the folks <laughs> at home. Prove to us you're worthy. <laughs> uh, just for the folks at home, what, what kind of gear are you running? So we kind of have a context as we kind of get into some of your workflows. Uh, okay. Yeah. So my, um, my Mac is a 15 inch MacBook Pro. Uh, it's, I think it's from about t- uh, 2013 and it's like maxed out. It's got the 16 gigabytes of RAM. Um, and then I also have an iPad Pro, uh, the smaller iPad Pro. Um, and I got the 128 gigabyte version with the cellular connection. The Katie Floyd special, as we call it around here. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they call it at the store. <laughs> yeah. As they should. Yeah, and then uh, I have an, an iPhone 6 that I'm sticking with, and the battery's starting to get a little weird, but I'm going to see how long I can make it last. Yeah, you never know. Maybe you'll get the iPhone 8 or iPhone 10 or whatever they call the next one. Yeah, see how long I can go. The one thing you told me, Ian, you do with your 15-inch MacBook, which just baffles me. In fact, after we got off the call, I was thinking, I can't believe he does that, is you use your 15-inch MacBook Pro on an airplane. Yes. <laughs> how on earth do you do that? They had a commercial about it, Data, don't you, or David, don't, did I just call you Data? I totally did. Processing, I'm not sure. Um, I've been watching some some Next Gen recently, I'm sorry about that, but it's a, take it as the highest compliment. I'll take Brent Spiner anytime, anytime. Yeah, but wasn't there, didn't they have like Yao Ming uh, in that episode, uh, that uh, commercial with the center seat and... You sit in the center seat and you got one thing on tray table to your right and one thing on tray table to your left. It, it works, right? If I had more than one seat, it would be pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, but before I had the 15 inch, I had uh, the 13 inch MacBook Air. 
And I felt like I was starting to outgrow it. And I felt like the 13 inch pro like wasn't enough of a power upgrade. So I went for the big boy and it's great when I'm like, I, uh, when I'm rendering video out, you know, to, to get through that stuff faster, but yeah, it, it barely fits on the airplane and it takes up the whole tray table. So then I have to decline the beverage, uh, when it comes around and if the person in front of me leans back at all, then I'm in a real pickle. You're out of business. <laughs> yeah. You, ju- you just put the beverage on the, the key rest, on the, the uh, palm rest. No no danger there. <laughs> I've experimented with that. And it's, yeah, it's a little bit dangerous. I, if I were you, I would just, I would decline beverages for everybody in the row. I'd say, no, thank you. None of us will have anything to drink today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When they reach over with the drink, it's a, it's a moment of uh, fear that's going to spill. I'm going to go off on a tangent. I have this nightmare scenario. I was um, traveling and my little brother ordered apple juice. And so, of course, you know what happens next is the apple juice ended up all over me. And for wherever we were traveling to, and apple juice is like the worst thing to spill on yourself because for, to be to be clear, I did not spill it. But it, and to this day, I will not sit next to him on a plane because I just look at him and I'm like, nope, apple juice, not sitting next to you. Because it's like, <laughs> it's sticky and it's smelly and it's just, it was, of course, the very beginning of our flight. And so it was like eight hours that I had to sit with like this apple juice. And um, I was on the last flight that I was on and I, w- I was flying alone. And um, this woman, she seemed like a very nice professional woman sat down next to me and the stewardess comes by and you know what she orders? She orders apple juice. Uh, and I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no, no, you are not. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, I, uh, so did, wait a second. I got to know. Did, did you get spelled on again? I think I got up and moved. <laughs> <laughs> I will take another seat, please. My wife spilled uh, red wine on herself on an airplane. Had to sit with that smell the whole time. Mm -hmm. Then you just order more red wine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You order enough, you don't smell it anymore. The, the, um, I, although I, I will say just a, as a travel tip, I, uh, years ago, I stopped using a Mac on airplanes when the iPad got good enough. I mean, and this is the iPads a lot better now than when I started, but, I just pack a laptop in my, in my luggage. I have a, a good, um, uh, what's it called? Um, Pelican, Pelican travel case. So it's, it's a hard case. Everything's safe in there. So I, I always pack the laptop in there. I never on travel day, I've just got the iPad. And then I like to plan out a couple big, like writing projects, or maybe I'm just going to blast through a bunch of email or something, stuff that's easy to do on an iPad with a keyboard. And boy, especially with that little 9.7 inch, I would recommend trying that on the next trip. And then you don't have to, you know, have your heart come out, come out your, uh, your mouth every time somebody gets a drink in your row. Yeah, I tend when I'm traveling, I tend to be getting ready for a presentation. So I like to be able to work on Keynote on the laptop. Yeah. So that's why I'll, I'll tend to have it out. But yeah, it's amazing how much you can get done on a flight. Yeah, but you can. I, I agree with you absolutely on that. For some reason, it's just. And now David's going to tell you why you can do everything on your iPad now. <laughs> well, just for for the sake of the flight, you really can with with Keynote particularly. It's it's a pretty powerful implementation on iPad. So I, I've done the same thing, but just with the iPad, you just got to get more comfortable with the touch. Um, yeah. And and since I'm on the iPad um, pedestal here. <laughs> Um, one of the things you told me, Ian, which I thought was really interesting is 
How did you, when you got that iPad Pro, you said it changed your workflows in some way. And just tell us a little bit about that. I mean, we'll get into it more with the show as well, but I, I thought it was a very interesting angle. Yeah, so my uh, my biggest like breakthrough with using this iPad Pro um, was trying to get away from um, like maximizing my efficiency, which I know is like kind of the point of the Mac Power Users podcast is like finding all those advanced workflows. Um, but as my business has grown, it's uh, it just doesn't scale for me to keep doing everything on my own. So part of what I like about the iPad Pro is is the constraints. Um, and that it kind of limits what I can do. Um, and it really, it, it kind of makes me feel like I'm a boss when I'm holding the iPad Pro. Like it's something you would walk around and like check on other people with. Um, and so, so I feel like when I'm using the iPad Pro, it's, it's easier for me to like send jobs off to other people. Um, and it really helped me, uh, it really encouraged me to look at ways that I could offload some of the tasks that I had been doing that uh, that really like don't require my input and that other people could do just as well. Um, so so the iPad Pro became something where I where I used it as a tool to offload tasks onto other people. Yeah, like you were telling me, like you were saying the iPad and you wanted to upload text to MailChimp and format your newsletter. And you're like, this is really hard on the iPad. I'm just going to pay somebody to do this part for me. Yeah, and and that's Mailchimp is is a good example because their like their text input doesn't quite work well um, on the mobile Safari. Like if you're in the code version, um, so uh, yeah, that's something where I figured this doesn't take like me personally copying and pasting into Mailchimp. Uh, yeah, and it's you can find a million people who are capable of handling that kind of a task. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's it's different kind of productivity. It's saying, okay, we're not going to find a way to make this easy on the iPad. Instead, we're going to say, I could make a lot more money if I went on to the stuff that makes me money and paid somebody a few bucks to do this little, you know, busy work for me. I like that. So uh, I've, I've thought about that a lot since you told me. And as I'm going into 2017 and thinking about getting some virtual assistance, uh, you've given me a good measuring stick that I wasn't aware of. So I want to thank you for that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's difficult to like let go of things because it feels like only I could possibly do this. Um, but it turns out like not all the tasks are that special. Um, so for me, the first thing that I kind of gave up was, um, booking my travel for the trips that I go on, um, because I started to make like travel booking mistakes and I'd show up and I didn't have a hotel room or the hotel was for like a month after the date that I was supposed to have it for. Yeah, that's no fun. <laughs> so I realized I was probably a little overloaded on the that detail work. Um, but yeah, it just took like writing a paragraph uh, to send to the virtual assistant and just tell him like when I like to fly and, you know, what hotels I, I prefer. And um, yeah, he's it's been really fun being able to send him just the dates that I need. And then I get all these confirmation emails and everything's kind of taken care of for me. It, it makes me feel like I have a real business. How did you find your virtual assistant? We've talked about the idea of using virtual assistants some on the show. And like David, that's something I'm looking into as well. So how was that process of finding and then figuring out how best to work with one for you? I've experimented with it a lot in terms of just doing like one-off tasks. Um, but for booking the travel and doing some of the stuff that I thought was kind of mission critical for my job, I wanted to get somebody who's a native English speaker and like preferably based in the U.S. so that our times would kind of line up. Um, so I used 
um, Upwork, which used to be called Odesk. Um, and you can filter for all those kinds of um, like locations and they have like English fluency tests that people pass. So, um, so I could kind of find people that were in the ballpark of what I was looking for. Um, and then I've just found if you give, rather than like hiring someone on, if you give them like a sample task, it gives a really good idea of how they're going to approach the jobs. And a, a fun like little tip that I had read was when you, when you write up the job description to put some kind of weird question at the end, just something like, what's your favorite beverage while you're working? Um, and it's amazing. It makes it really easy to filter through um, people because most people will not answer that question, which means they didn't really read the description. Uh, so that's like the first barrier of like making sure that people are actually paying attention. Or if they answer Jack Daniels, then you you might want to just <laughs> cut them out as well. Right. Um, yeah. So I found uh, I found this guy who um, who was living in New Jersey and was looking to kind of start a side business doing virtual assistant stuff. Um, and uh, I just tried out a couple sample uh, jobs with him. And then um, I gave him my like logins for like the airlines that I use. Uh, and it, that has my credit card information saved. So he doesn't like have the credit card information and he can just book it through that website. So I have kind of a layer of, you know, keeping that information confidential. Yeah, that's certainly one of the pieces of his trust when it's somebody on the other side of the country or the other side of the world. Uh, how much, you know, do you let them into the system? Because to help you out, they do need to have some access. Yeah. And uh, that's something where Mac Power User trip, Tricks can come in handy, I think. Um, but it sounds like you've been happy with it in general. Yeah, it's it's been really good. Uh, some, some services are better in terms of you can set up... Um, kind of like child accounts where they can log in, but they maybe don't have full access to everything. Um, so I've been, uh, I've been doing this for, I think the beginning of the year, um, January, I hired him. Um, yeah. And it's been, yeah, just growing the trust and um, giving him more jobs. Uh, and it's, it's been working out really well. And so he does like invoicing for me. Um, he handles MailChimp related tasks, uh, just kind of stuff that I, never looked forward to doing um he's able to take care of and and he does it pretty quickly and we all uh, we communicate through slack which uh which works really well um, on all the different devices and it makes it really easy to send documents back and forth um so that that's become a really useful tool i think we talk about slack on almost every episode anymore it's just become such a standard communication outlet for people yeah it's really it's fun to use and it's really powerful this episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by MindNode, the delightful application that makes mind mapping easy on the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. Learn more at MindNode.com. I've talked in the past about how much I love using MindNode to get mind mapping done. It's a simple application that looks beautiful and works on all my devices. My brain is definitely one of those that works on problems in little bites. I'll start working on a mind map and then suddenly a day later an idea will come to me. Well, it's great because with my note, I can just pull my iPhone out of my pocket, make the addition to the mind map, and when I get back to my Mac or my iPad, it's right there for me. This holiday season, I've decided to use MindNode to track my holiday gifts. I've got a big family, and every year I end up buying extra gifts for people because I've lost track of something. 
So because I'm a visual thinker, I figured, why not? And I opened up a mind map with just the holiday gift lists. And then my wife and I look at it and we come up with ideas. It's a lot of fun around the dinner table as we start planning our gift giving for the year. And the best part is I can quickly get access to that data on any of my Apple devices. If I wanted to go really crazy, once we were done with our gift list, I could export it to the Reminders application or even OmniFocus. MindNode can do that. If you've been thinking about giving MindNode a try, now is really the time. The MindNode team has been hard at work with making updates to the application for Sierra on the Mac. MindNode supports full screen. You can trigger quick look for images directly on the canvas, which is super helpful. And they also have full Sierra tab support on the Mac, which is great if you're working with multiple maps. They are hard at work with touch bar integration. So if you've got a fancy new MacBook Pro, very shortly, you're going to get an update that you love. If you haven't taken mind mapping seriously, you really need to give it a try. It's like a productivity secret weapon. It lets you get your thoughts organized and at the end of the day allows you to work faster and better. Long before they were a sponsor of Mac Power users, I started using MindNode, and I'm so happy to have them as a sponsor of the show. Go check it out yourself at MindNode.com and let them know you heard about it from the Mac Power users. Well, Ian, one of the things that you do a lot of is speaking. And that's probably why you're on that airplane with that 15-inch MacBook Pro so often. Yes. And um, just to give everybody a little kind of background, Ian goes and teaches teachers, teaches them how to, you know, deal with these super talented kids and gives them some ideas. And um, your typical presentation, Ian, were you telling me it was like something like six hours? Yeah, I often get called out to do um, a, a full day workshop, which would be six hours. So you're flying all over the country and then a room full of teachers shuffles in that probably don't even care about what you have to say too much. Uh. <laughs> At least some of them, some of them. <laughs> yeah, it it really depends on the group that I'm going out to. And we do a lot of talking on the show about how to give that sexy, you know, 10 to 20 minute presentation where you wow them. I mean, to keep an audience with you for six hours, that's a whole different ball game. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's a challenge. And I think it's taken me a few years to kind of get comfortable with it. Um, and it's it's definitely I, I also do like uh, conferences and those tend to be really fun because teachers um, teachers are they choose to be there. A lot of times they're paying out of pocket and those are more like hour sessions. Um, but yeah, the six hour um, workshops, they tend to be like a district requ required training. So there will be teachers who are just there because they have to be there. Uh, and a lot of times they've had to write up sub plans and they've left their students, you know, with a stranger. Uh, so there is definitely a kind of a need to win them over. And I think I feel like the biggest thing that I've learned about doing workshops is um, is learning to like let go um, and not not control the time as much. And I feel like when I'm most nervous, I will talk the most and it just turns into a lecture. Um, and then, and then you need a lot more material if you're just going to talk for six hours. And so as I've become more comfortable with it, um, a lot of that involves giving the group time to discuss and, and work through some of the things that I'm showing them, um, and giving them that, like that time, it means that I have to prepare less and it means that they can like go deeper into each topic that we're covering. Yeah. Stop and process more probably. Yeah. And so that's, that's the, been the biggest thing is learning to kind of relax and give them some control. 
I feel I feel like I'm I get nervous that if I if I let them say anything, it's going to be negative or they're going to ask a question and I'll have no idea how to answer it. Um, but usually it doesn't happen. And um, and giving them that time to to work through things is really important. And and it helps me to plan the day out a lot easier. I, I remember once we had uh, some friends of my wife's that were Japanese. They were visiting Southern California and they decided to come over to our house. And, and so the very nice ladies, there's six of them and I've never met any of them before. And my wife says, Dave will make you tea. She says that to, to, to these Japanese people who grew up on a tea ritual, right? <laughs> that must be what it feels like to, to spend six hours teaching teachers. Cause they know the techniques and they're watching you. It must, it must be kind of intimidating really. Yeah. And I think the, th- the, the ironic thing is, um, a lot of workshops don't use like good teaching techniques, even if the person leading the workshop is up there talking about teaching. Um, so that, so I think that's a key is like bringing in what, what we know about learning into a situation like that. Um, and, and keeping it from becoming a lecture, but giving people lots of opportunities to practice things. Um, and kind of realizing that people aren't very good at listening, even if they're, even if they're interested and they want to listen, it's like really easy for your mind to wander. And, you know, you suddenly realize you haven't been paying any attention. I'm sorry. What did you say? I wasn't listening. (laughs) (laughs) You have to hit the rewind button on the podcast player. Um, so just being aware that, uh, when you're, when you're giving a talk that a lot of times people's minds are drifting, um, so coming back to like main points and and re- giving people repetition, um, and I kind of try to think of it as like having like a storyline throughout the day, so that we're like hitting major plot points, but it's always emphasizing like one big idea, even if it takes six hours to explore the idea. What about the technology side of this? When you're giving a presentation for six hours, there's a whole bunch of considerations you don't have when you're talking for twenty minutes. How's the tech? What, what, how are you handling this on the tech side? Um, so, so I use Keynote for um, for my slides uh, f- for like a six hour day. There, there will be hundreds of slides, like maybe three hundred to five hundred slides. You, you realize, of course, I may have two hundred slides in a ten minute presentation, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pay, pay no attention to him; he's crazy. So I've learned to kind of reduce the amount of information that I try to give. Um. And I think one of the, my favorite things about Keynote is they've added that like slide in bar on the left so that you can scroll through your slide deck without um, taking the slide off the screen. So that's really like freed me up where if I realize we've spent a long time on something, I can kind of skip through things or go back to points. Um, and I think that's a flexibility that um, like most slideshows people feel like they don't have. Like you have to go slide by slide by slide and it becomes very linear and controlled. Uh, so I really, I like that ability to be able to jump around without having to take the whole slideshow down. And are, are you doing it on a Mac or iPad? Uh, I present with, with the Mac. I don't, I'm not quite confident enough to use the iPad Pro for the presentation. And I, I don't have enough dongles yet for, <laughs> to hook the iPad Pro up. <laughs> yes, many, many dongles are necessary. Use a remote as well, or yeah. I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about the physical setup of your presentation because with with if you're going for six hours, my guess is you're not just going to be standing straight behind a podium and click click click. That that'd probably get a little old. 
Yeah, I like to move around. Um, so I do, I have a remote. It's a Logitech. Uh, it's, it's a Logitech R400 and it's a little USB remote. Um, and then I'm usually, it depends. Um, it really depends on the room that I'm being set up in. But one of the things I like about the 15 inch pro is that it has the HDMI out. Um, and then I can also use the VGA dongle. Uh, so having those options is really helpful to, you know, to be able to plug in in different situations and uh, to deal with, you know, whoever the tech person is who's going to be helping me out. I, I would also think that the um, that the presenter display is very helpful for a presentation that long because you don't know what's coming next when it's a six hour long deck. Yes, I, the pres- the presenter mode is amazing, um, especially having like the timer up there and being able being just being aware of how time is passing. Um, I use the, I use the notes a little bit, but a lot of times I'll be walking around. Um, but it's, it's really useful to be able to go and see what's coming next. Um, the worst situations are when they don't, they have this, they have it set up. So I can't have the laptop up front and it has to be like back in some room. Um, and that, that I get very nervous about <laughs> in case something goes wrong. I don't have access to the slides. Have you ever considered using like your iPhone or an iPad as your remote in that case? Cause you could do that uh, remote from uh, your iOS device to back to your Mac. So you could have a little image. Yeah, there was, there was um, a couple trips where I tried using the iPhone where after my, I had my remote broke or something, but um, I don't, I like the like physical buttons on the remote and just being able to like feel and, and not have to look down all the time. And sometimes I would, I just couldn't get the slides to advance without like looking down and seeing where my thumb was. And I know, I feel like that's distracting for um, the people who are there because, you know, it kind of looks like I'm checking my phone and I'm always looking away from them. And it's a huge distraction for you too, because now you've got a, you're talking, but in the back of your mind, you're like, well, what am I going to do to make the next slide show up? Yes. Whereas if it's a button, you just know that's coming. Uh, tell us some of your, with all this presentation work you've done, I'm sure you've got some great war stories. Are there a few tech dilemmas or, you know, issues you've faced over the years that may help a listener out that's thinking about giving a presentation or two? Oh, well, I have, I have learned to always like have backups of everything, like in terms of the slides, but also in terms of just the hardware that I have. So I have, I always travel with two of those VGA dongles um, because I've had, I've had them go bad on me like the morning of. And I think that's, that's something where I'm like hesitant to transition to the new laptops that, that will require more and more dongles (laughs) Um, because people like, if it's at a hotel or if it's, if there's a tech person, a lot of times they'll have extra versions of, um, of the Apple dongles. So, so for me, having extras of things is really, um, it kind of gives peace of mind in case something goes wrong. Yeah. Because that's the, that's the whole deal for you. If you, um, cause if it's a six hour presentation you don't have any slides, it's going to get really hard. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I embed video and, you know, I try to make the most of those visuals. So it just, it would really be a, a total disaster if I didn't, um, if I didn't have the slides. You know, if I were you, I would be super tempted to, and I know you don't want to do this, but just to add more dongles to your life, I would get a set for the iPad 
just as a backup and not that you intend to present from the iPad, but it, you know, you, if you've got a keynote presentation, you've got it in iCloud, it's there. And what if your, you know, your 15 inch MacBook pro decides to go up and smoke that morning, it would be nice to be able to have some way to get those slides up. Yeah. And that, that may be something that I, I, I think I'm going to try the iPad pro out, um, when I have maybe just like a one hour presentation and give it, give it a spin and see how it goes. Um, I'll have to get a different remote. I, I, I think that you use a remote with your iPad, David. Is that right? Yeah, I can. Yeah, just a little feedback on iPad presenting. I've been doing it now for about six months, and um, uh, there's it's great because it's small and easy and convenient. It sucks because you don't have as much control over a presenter display, and you've got to use a Bluetooth remote. Like my ideal remote is is um is one that has a green laser, and it's like you know it's it's just a lot better than the Bluetooth remotes I'm using with the iPad. But the one that I am using with the iPad is fine, but it's it's not the greatest in comparison. Yeah. And that stuff, I mean, that stuff matters. Like for me, it's, it's pretty nerve wracking to get up and lead, you know, a presentation all day. Uh, and so it's nice to have the remote that I'm comfortable with and, you know, the screen set up how I like it and like the lights in the room just right. I, I think probably the worst thing about the presentations, the rooms is that, um, a lot of times they don't, if it's, if it's at a school, a lot of times they don't have control over the air conditioning or the heater. So throughout the day, it will like get frozen and then they'll make a call and then they'll turn the heat up and then it will get super hot. So I'm like dealing with the temperature extremes also. So that's, that's probably my least favorite thing yeah, about not knowing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wear layers. Yeah, just for the record, my my remote for my iPad is the Satichi S A T E C H I aluminum wireless presenter pointer, and uh, uh, according to my Amazon uh, order history, <laughs> it's nice. It's a little cylinder. It's just got three buttons on it, so you can't mess it up. And it's Bluetooth. It, it works fine, but it's not as nice as my Kensington that I use with my Mac. David, for those of us who are going to have to buy a bunch of dongles to adapt our existing remotes to work with our new Macs. I'm assuming does that Bluetooth remote also work with your Mac? I um I assume it does, but I've never tried it. Hmm. So, but my Mac has Bluetooth radio in it, so I can't imagine it wouldn't. What kind of dongles do you have to hook up to, like the projector from your iPad? Yeah, well, they've got a couple. Um, they've got an F. They've got an HDMI. They've got an RGB one. VGA. I'm sorry, VG VGA. I don't. Know, I keep calling it RGB, but the uh, yeah, they've got they've got one of each. And both of those have a power like in it too. So you can plug power and get it in. And then the remote itself is Bluetooth. So you don't need any dongles for that. Okay. But they don't make a single dongle lightning that has both VGA and HDMI. You've got to get one of each. The other option is to do the Apple TV pass-through route, which is to go with an Apple TV and plug that into the projector. And then they even make, it sounds very backwards, a backwards dongle that will go from the HDMI in an Apple TV to VGA um, because some projectors require VGA, which is kind of specifically designed for presentations. So that's an option too, but it typically also requires bringing your own network. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's always a little, uh, I, I get a lot of sometimes flack from the, the tech guys just because I have a Mac. So I feel like trying to make it any more complicated is going to make it 
even more difficult to get stuff set up. I've got a friend right now that's been in the middle of a six week trial and he's been doing the whole thing with uh, iPad and uh, uh, Apple TV. And they've got just a little airport extreme in the court courtroom that they brought that's locked down and it, it's not even connected to the Internet. The whole purpose of it is to give this little private Wi-Fi network for the iPad. And he says it's just been working aces for him. But um, so I think that stuff is getting easier, but you still got to know what you're doing to get it hooked up. And you're right. The tech guys sometimes are terrible. With them. I had that happen to me once. I wrote up with Max Barkey where I got in and I was going to give a big presentation. He's like, oh, you're Mac. It won't work. You're Mac. I'm like, what <laughs> What does that mean? I'm Mac. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was it was a VGA and I had the adapter. And he's like, no, you're Mac. The Macs don't work here, so you can't use it. You'll just have to. It, it, this guy just like dismissed me out of hand. And I was being paid to be there. So I was getting pretty, pretty fried. So, I, of course, because I'm Max Barkey, I had my own. And it, it just wasn't working though. I was plugging, it wasn't working. So I brought my own VGA cable out and I plugged my own VGA cable into the projector and then it worked. It was his cable. Oh. And I said, no, it's your cable. He says, no, well, that's because that cable doesn't work with Mac. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sometimes. I, it, it used to be terrible that way, but I, I thought we were kind of over that. But this was just like last year that that happened to me. So go yeah, figure. See, now, now I feel like I should be bringing my own VGA cables too. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mac power users making you paranoid since 2009. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's funny. I mean, I travel with a bunch of stuff I hardly ever use, but, you know, when you need it, it's it's really nice to have that. I want to take a moment and thank our longtime sponsor, 1Password. And you can find a special promotion on 1Password by going to onepassword.com slash MPU. Make sure MPU is in all caps. So as you may know, I got a new MacBook Pro recently, and it has been a little bit of a love-hate relationship for me in the MacBook Pro, but it has mostly been good. One of my favorite features of the new MacBook Pro is Touch ID and the Touch Bar. And one of the things that I am most excited about for using my new MacBook Pro with Touch ID is that I can now use Touch ID on my new MacBook Pro to unlock 1Password. In fact, the gang at 1Password had 1Password working with Touch ID on the new MacBook Pro before the new MacBook Pro was even shipping. How cool is that? They did something similar when Apple opened up Touch ID support on iOS as well. That just goes to show you the level of dedication the development team has for 1Password, both on the Mac and iOS. And I got to tell you, for my password management system, something that holds the most important information on my computer, it holds my usernames, it holds my passwords, it holds my software serial numbers, it holds my secure notes, it holds the keys to my kingdom. Having a dedicated development team who is always on top of the latest developments, dedicated to their product is one of the most important things when it comes to me making my buying decisions. And let me tell you, I've been using 1Password with Touch ID on the Mac. It is really cool. If you haven't had a chance to check out 1Password yet, there has never been a better time. 1Password keeps your digital life secure and always available and safe behind the 1Password that only you know. There are apps available for Android, iOS, Mac, and Windows. And of course, 1Password syncs either using their own 1Password service or with services like iCloud and Dropbox. There are options for 1Password available for individual users, options available for your family, and options available for your team. So no matter where you are in life or how many passwords you have to manage or who you have to manage passwords for, there's an option that is available for you. 
And especially with the holiday season fast approaching, I want you to consider giving the gift of 1Password to someone in your life, because really, what better gift can you give to someone this year than upping their security game? You can learn more information by heading over to onepassword.com and don't forget onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get an extra special offer. Thanks to One Password for their continued support of Mac Power users. All right, Ian. Well, I know you're you're quite a presenter and I would encourage people to go to birdseed.com and check out some of the stuff you do, but you also do an interesting thing, um, which is video production. Um, you create these videos for the teachers and the students. And um, and tell us a little bit about how you went from teacher to video producer. This is uh, so I have this site called which is birdseed.tv. Um, and it, it started as kind of as I left the classroom and tried to pursue this as a full time business. Um, it started as a way to, to try to differentiate or you know add another way for um, like another stream of income. Um, and it, it started just as trying to take my in-person trainings and make them into like virtual trainings. So I would take my my keynote slides. Um, I use ScreenFlow to capture them as a video. Um, and then I, I record my voice uh, as the narration. Um, and initially, I was also um, using the webcam to videotape like my face. But I stopped doing that because it added too much complexity. Um, and then I I I, um, I turned those into an MP4 and then put them online. Um, and what I found was that teachers uh, they weren't as interested in videos directed at them, um, but they really liked the idea of having videos for their students. So I sort of changed <clears throat> I sort of changed the direction of what I was doing with that, and I started to make videos for um, for teachers, and then also add a version that their students could log on and use. Um, so that's been kind of an interesting path is like trying to figure out how to set these videos up so that students can work through a project um, and then stop the video and then continue as they uh, as they're ready to move on. So talk to us logistically a little bit about how you're making those. Are you you're, are you still building the slides in Keynote and then running through the slide deck on your Mac? And then how are you timing those? So, uh, so what I've started doing now is I'll write a script out first, um, and that that really helps me to plan what the video is going to be like. So I'll spend time writing the script out, and then now I've started to add in the script, like what kind of a slide I want to have at certain points, and then um, and then I'll go and build the slideshow in Keynote. And the videos, t- they tend to be pretty short. Um, most of them are now like between five and ten minutes. Oh, okay, yeah. And that's that's gotten a lot shorter over time as you know I've kind of found out what people like. So um, so once I build the slides, then uh, the first thing I do is record the narration. So I'll go through and read the script, and just record my voice, and I record that into ScreenFlow, and then that gives me a chance to kind of go through and edit the narration to get it just how I want it, um, and then I'll go through and I play the narration. And I switch over to Keynote, and then I'll click through it as I listen to my own narration. And then I can do the timing along with my voice. And that's also while you're recording the screen. So then that also goes into screen flow as well, I would assume. Yeah, so then I'll end up with the pre-recorded narration and then a video file of the Keynote slides. That's probably pretty well synced up already because you're listening back and playing it back. 
yeah, it's you. I'll usually have to do a little bit of editing, um, and going through that process, even even though it feels like I'm just sitting there a lot of the time, um, it helps me find mistakes in the keynote slides, or I might realize that I need to to make it more clear or add some additional slides. So that process of listening and syncing the slides up is really useful to do kind of a, like a second draft of the video. It's interesting because I do a similar workflow because I do uh, screencast videos for app developers sometimes when I kind of promo or show how to use their app. And th there really is an art to, I would say, performing the keynote while you're using audio or recording audio, you know, getting the transitions right. It sounds a lot easier than it actually is. But but the one thing you talked about was how you use your video of yourself. And I I know that gets awkward because you're sitting there, the camera, you're not looking directly at the camera necessarily as you're trying to pull all this off. So it starts to kind of look like a guy in the basement video and you don't want that. But, um, but one of the tricks I've used, because I do feel like it, when you're doing these kind of remote type video presentations, it really helps for people to have an idea who the heck is is talking uh, so I used photos. A lot of times at the beginning of the video, I'll just say, hey, I'm David, and I'll have a picture of myself up for a minute. It's not going to have me talking the whole time, but then they've got an image in their mind as we go forward. And I feel like there's a little bit more of a connection, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that that's a good idea. I think it's I think people like to know like who they're listening to. Uh, yeah, so I think including a photo is a good idea. And, and what do you use for your recording gear? Like, how do you record your voice? Uh, so I have this USB mic. It's an Apogee mic 96K. Yeah, podcasting special. A lot of podcasters start with that one. Yeah, and originally I had, I have like, a, I have a music background. So I had like um, an XLR interface with um, with kind of a recording mic. Um, and then this was a backup like travel mic that I would take with me if I wanted to do work in hotel rooms. Um, but I just kind of ended up liking this one. It's got the USB cable, and then it also has a lightning cable. So I've been able to use it on the iPad Pro also and do um, some of the audio editing on there. Now, this is popular in the legal field because attorneys have to do, like many professions, we have to do continuing education courses. And um, one of the things that's real popular now is instead of everybody having to go to a particular place and, you know, sit in a conference room and watch somebody give a presentation, is they're now offering these presentations by webcast or you can order the the online version or the CD or the DVD or, or whatnot. Have you thought about um, recording and then maybe tweaking or, or editing any of the presentations that you give live? And is that, or even if you could, is that a, is that a process you've considered? Yeah, it's actually, it's something a friend and I are really investigating um, partially because I don't see myself traveling this much for like the rest of my life because it's pretty exhausting um, but it's also a lot of districts are moving, uh, school districts are moving towards online models. Uh, I think it's a lot cheaper for them than having to fly people out. Um, so I, th I think it's kind of a really interesting area right now is providing like quality online education. And I think a lot, what a lot of people are doing is just videotaping a live event and then putting it online. But I think there's a lot more you could do and, in terms of like taking advantage of the interactivity of the web. Yeah. With your geek skills, you could make it so much better than that. I mean, like in the, in the law business, so many of those videos, I feel like I call them hostage videos because no, they're horrible. <laughs> there's a guy at a desk and you know, I, it's just terrible. 
I bet you could make some amazing ones. You should definitely pursue that. Yeah, I was just thinking, I I gave a presentation, you know, last night, one of these, you know, chicken dinner things where you come, you get a chicken dinner and you listen to somebody talk. And I was the somebody who talked. And I was just thinking, you know, that presentation that I gave, it was just a keynote deck. I, I could give that again on my website and clean it up and take out some of the corny jokes. And, you know, all of a sudden... I, I, you know, people love video on websites now. Now I've got a video for my, my website about the basics of estate planning and what you need to know. So, yeah, but I think, I think the key is, is making it look not like this was just video, you know, this was just a, you know, handy cam in the back of the room type thing. Yeah. And that's the thing is video, it gets so complicated to make it look like good and not just like a webcam. Right. But see, like for you, and I guess this is starting to feel like an intervention, so I should stop. But you could build it around your slides. The slide is professional looking video and you've got a good mic. I mean, the other the failing of these things so often you go on a website based video is the audio is horrendous. It's just so bad. And if you have bad audio, it's just you can't recover from that. But you could put together something pretty nice, I bet. Yeah. And I've um, I've experimented a little bit um, when I've done like when I've keynoted conferences um, I've recorded myself and I have a little like lav mic that hooks into my iPhone. Um, so then I can just record my voice. Um, and it, it's pretty high quality since it's right there by my mouth. Uh, and then, and then I can go back and take like a piece of that keynote and then, um, add in my slides. Um, so I've, I've done that a couple times where I just take like a 20 minute section out of the hour and I've put that up on my blog and it's, it's just the slides with um, my like live speaking and uh, people have really like responded to that. Um, and it's turned into like a lot of speaking opportunities. So like just giving people like an example of what it's like to hear me give a presentation. Um, it's, it's like really good marketing and it's also just a great way to get information out. And everybody listening to this could do that. I mean, using Kino and ScreenFlow, you could put something together. It's it's not that hard, whether you're selling insurance or whatever. Um, it's it's really not that if you make a keynote presentation and you can and you're willing to spend a hundred bucks or so to get a decent mic, uh, this stuff is not that hard to produce. Maybe we'll do a show someday, Katie, where we really break that down, all the nitty gritty. But it, you know, Ian's given you the the keys right there. Those two apps. And yeah, and I would say the biggest, the biggest thing that's helped me improve um, those screencasts is really writing that script out in advance. Like it seems like it would be really easy just to talk and hit all your main points. Um, but the nicely like revised script really makes a difference in the final product because you lose all the like extraneous tangents that you go on. Um, so that, that would be my biggest tip is is making a nice script first and getting your voice recording done before you do the. Yeah. And you think you can wing it. Uh, you think that, oh, it'll be fine. And you will spend so much more time editing out your flubs and the things that, oh, that was a silly tangent. I shouldn't have done that because you winged it. Then you will probably writing the script and just stay on message. All right, let, let's go over to your writing. This because you've written a few books. You've got, um, you've got. You're an interesting guest in a sense that at, you're currently writing a book about teaching. You know, helping teachers out. You're also participating in NanoRimo, which is you're writing a novel in a month right now. November is, is National Month. In fact, Jason Snell is on the board of directors for that that um, oh, nonprofit. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, 
so you're doing two things. You're writing a novel, but you're writing tech. Uh, no, I want to say tech. You're writing um, technically as well as writing a novel. So how are you doing that? Any of the like smaller writing, like for my blog, um, I just use TextMate 2 and I write in Markdown. And then uh, I have a WordPress site. So all the smaller writing is just in Markdown. I use MarsEdit to upload it. Um, but for these bigger projects, I've been using Scrivener. Um, and it's it's been really fun to kind of explore Scrivener. Like I, I've used it in the past, um, but doing these two projects at once has, uh, has really allowed me to go deeper into it. Uh, and so I just, I love the ability to just keep breaking text down into like these smaller documents and organizing it. And then just being able to store PDFs and the reference material right in the file is super useful. I mean, we just did, I don't know if you listened to the show, we did the Scrivener and Ulysses and yeah, it, it is those, those resources that Scrivener has that makes it so wonderful. And, and, and you know, the, the idea of, of breaking your text into buckets is awesome too, but the, uh, it's really nice having it all in one app. Yeah. And doing the, doing NaNoWriMo, which I've, I've always wanted to do, but it's, it's never really worked out. And November tends to be like a busy month in terms of my travel schedule. Um, but it was like, I feel like it's never going to be a good time. So, so this year I decided to do it. Um, and Scrivener has been awesome because of like the word count features are really advanced and you can like really dial in your daily goals. And it, it really helps keep you on track to hit the 50,000 words at the end of the month. For, for people who aren't familiar, give us a little rundown of what NetNoRimo is, what the goals are, and kind of what you do to throughout the month for that. Yeah, so NanoRimo uh, just stands for National Novel Writing Month, and it happens every November. Uh, and the whole goal is just to basically do a, a rough first draft of a novel, and you're supposed to hit 50,000 words, and that's considered like winning NanoRimo. Um, so I think the biggest challenge for me has just been you're not supposed to go back and revise what you're writing. You're just supposed to be like pumping out this first draft and then with the idea that you'll go back and and revise it later. So it's it's pretty challenging to allow myself to write things that I know don't sound good, um, but to know that I'll come back and work on it later. And you are the idea with NetNoRimo is you you hit a certain word count a day. Is that how you follow it? I know some people are a little lax. They'll write more one day and, and less another, especially kind of around the Thanksgiving time. Yeah, so I've you have a daily goal. I think it's like one thousand six hundred sixty-seven words, and that that would put you on track to hit the fifty thousand. Um, so I've been I've tried to write a little bit more than that um, because I know some days I'll be on planes or traveling, so I won't be able to get to the goal every day. Um, but so far, I've been able to hit it, and I've tried to keep that like consistency, and then um, not write too much in any one day. Um, because then that will leave me something like the next day to continue working from. Yeah. And, and it's a, um, and Scrivener is really well suited for that, for that project. I mean, they've got ways to count your words. In fact, I think there's, they've even sponsored or been involved with kind of the organization of NaNoWriMo in some capacity. Yeah. I saw a couple deals they had done in the past where they had like a NaNoWriMo discount. Um, but yeah, I, it's doing the novel in that, um, in that app has has really helped me see just some of the organizational tools are really useful uh, and they have like all the different labels you can apply 
to to different sections. Um, and so that's useful if you're writing like multiple characters. You can kind of color code like which characters are in which scenes. Um, and as as the novel starts to grow, I can see like just keeping it all in your brain becomes really challenging. So it's just a great organizational tool for writing. Now your your Scrivener's on the iPad now too. Are you doing any of this stuff on iPad or is it all happening on that big MacBook? Yeah, so I've I had only had Scrivener on on the Mac before. And so once I started NanoRimo, I thought I'd use that as my excuse to buy it on iPad. Um, and so I've done the bulk of the writing on the iPad, uh, which I, I love doing because... Oh, really? Uh, Interesting. Yeah, it's just there's there's just fewer distractions. Um, and so I've, I've got to use uh, Scrivener a lot on the iPad. And I, th- I think it's really awesome. And then it syncs over. And so when I just have the laptop, I can continue right where I was. And it really feels like they've included just about everything in that first version of that iPad app. It's pretty impressive. It had a kind of a sordid history, but he got it right when he did it. You know, one of the features I like in it that I don't think a lot of people realize is the way you pinch to zoom the text. Have you ever tried that? You just No. If you go on the text and you pinch and squeeze, you can change the text size, which seems like a weird user interface. Oh, But, really? you know, on the iPad, because there's so many different iPads and different sizes, and uh, it's kind of nice to be able to, you know, adjust the point size depending on where you're at and like what the lighting is. And it's, it's an interesting method. Yeah, I'll have to try that out because that's I think that's probably the difficulty I have most with Scrivener is adjusting formatting and figuring out how to make it apply to like all of these little documents. So I like that idea of being able to just pinch and zoom on the font size. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by MacPaw. Take advantage of MacPaw's Cyber Monday deal to get 30% off all of MacPaw's must-have Mac applications. MacPaw makes some of my favorite applications for the Macintosh. Their Clean My Mac 3 application saves my bacon all the time. I've got an SSD in my iMac and it's not big enough, so I'm always trying to keep space optimized. Well, that's really difficult, but Clean My Mac does a great job of doing that job for me. It analyzes my Macintosh hard drive. It tells me where I've got extra space I can get rid of. And whenever I get in a jam, it's the application that takes care of the problem for me. Clean My Mac does a lot more than just cleaning my hard drive, though. It also optimizes and maintains my Mac. It's a great utility that I've come to rely upon over the years. Another great application from MacPaw is Gemini 2. This is one that has more recently come into the rotation for me, but I really love it. Gemini 2 is an intelligent duplication finder. We've heard about those in the past, but you've never seen one like this. Gemini can find and remove duplicates wherever they are on your Macintosh, and it's just a great way to help clean up that precious disk space, especially in these days of SSDs. One of my favorite features in Gemini 2 is the ability to look at my photos library. Just like duplicate photos, similar photos are also space wasters. With our iPhones and digital cameras, it's really easy to take 15 shots of your dog sitting on the couch, but you don't really need to keep all 15 of them. These photos are not duplicates, but they're similars. Gemini can actually look through your library for you and find those similar photos, allow you to pick one and get rid of the rest. This is a great way to save space in your photo library, and it's way faster than doing it manually. This feature alone is what got me to buy Gemini 2, but it does a lot more like remove duplicates from your iTunes library and anywhere else it can find them on your hard drive. If you tell it to keep a duplicate because it serves some purpose for you, 
Gemini is even smart enough to remember that and not bother you with that question in the future. Gemini and Clean My Mac are just two of the great applications MacPaw makes. I want you to head over to macpaw.com MPU and get 30% off on Cyber Monday. That's November 28, 2016. MacPaw makes great software. They don't usually put it on sale, so this is a unique opportunity for you. I paid full price for them, but why don't you get 30% off at macpaw.com MPU. And thanks again, MacPaw, for sponsoring the Mac Power users. Ian, I want to talk a little bit with all this stuff you're doing and the fact that you're a Mac nerd and an iPad nerd. Um, what, what's some of the underlying technologies that help you make all of this stuff work? Yeah, so I think on the Mac, one of my favorite things is Keyboard Maestro. Um, and so this is an app where you can uh, kind of define your own keyboard shortcuts. Um, but it's like it's unbelievably powerful. Um, and it's kind of one of those apps where you just keep finding more things that it can do. So I use that a lot because I use Keynote so much. Um, I use Keyboard Maestro to help. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of missing shortcuts that could be there in Keynote. And so with Keyboard Maestro, I can just kind of add those in. So things like um, like if I want to align a bunch of text boxes to the left, um, you just you would have to go up into the menu and it's like three submenus deep. Um, but through Keyboard Maestro, I can just set that up as a keyboard shortcut, and then it'll just align the text for me. Yeah, it's been a while, but we've done shows on Keyboard Maestro in the past. Whenever they did their last major update was the last time we covered it. And it's like it's like a power tool. I mean, it, just to, if there's anything on your Mac you want to do and you're not a programmer, Keyboard Maestro can probably handle it for you. Like uh, we used to talk about, like, if you connect to a Wi-Fi network, you can trigger Keyboard Maestro to log into certain websites or, you know, in addition to, to keyboard shortcuts, it's just does so much more. Do you, do you mainly use it for keyboard shortcuts or have you got some other cool tricks you're doing with Keyboard Maestro? I was, I was using, I think you guys had talked about that Wi-Fi trick um, on one of the episodes. So I was using that uh, to do something with, um, with a backup, but I haven't used it lately. But yeah, I mostly use it for keyboard shortcuts. Um, and some of, some of it is easy in terms of just you're kind of dragging and dropping. Um, but you can also like use Apple Script uh, and get into some, some pretty hardcore shortcuts. Yeah, it's one of these apps that's developed by a single guy who's super passionate about it. And he's got this massive list of things he wants to do with it. And every six months or year, you get an update that just added a bunch of new features that makes it super cool. Yeah, one of my one that I figured out recently that was that I just love using is in Keynote. If I if I want to make like a font size significantly bigger, you normally you have to go, you know, into the menu and type in the font size. But I found this Apple script where you can um, you, you can use the Apple script to change the font size in Keynote of a text box. Yeah. So then I can I assign that to you know a key combination, and it will go in and it'll grab like the current font size of the object and then multiply it by like one and a half. And and it's like a really great shortcut just to make like text a lot bigger or a lot smaller quickly. And so if you're constantly resizing text, uh, it really helps you out and saves a lot of time. I also think there's a version of that script of memory serves where you can set a specific point size. So if you want to say, okay, 80 points is going to be my standard font size throughout this whole presentation, you can go through and very quickly reformat that stuff. Yeah. And so those, I, I wish that there was, 
like I've never found it. I wish there was a resource for Apple script, like in Keynote, because so much, so much of it is just like finding random blogs where someone has, has put something like that up. Yeah. And a rare bit of Apple news, since we're talking about Apple script today, the, the news came out that Sal Segoyan's no longer at Apple. And, um, it, it, that is very disturbing for me in the future of automation on the Mac. So, yeah, yeah, that could be bad. But yeah, I just, I use Keyboard Maestro for a lot of stuff in Keynote. Like if I if I want to save it as uh, save a slideshow as a PDF, I just have this like one click, and it goes through all the menus and saves a slideshow as like a four up PDF, and then saves it into my Dropbox folder. Um, and it just it just automates some of those tasks that I never really look forward to. Amen, brother. Welcome to the Mac Power Users. Yes. <laughs> you, you told me you also are a big Pinboard user. How are you using Pinboard? Yeah, so I really like Pinboard because it's it's just everywhere. Um, and so I use that for. I'm sorry. We should probably explain what is Pinboard. Uh, so I think it's it it became famous when Delicious kind of news came out that delicious was going to shut down. So it's just, uh, it's just a bookmarking website. Um, and so you can just save bookmarks to Pinboard, and then you have access to it from anywhere where you can get on a website and the developer, this is another one person developed, um, app, but he keeps it pretty open. So there's a lot of front ends that you can download on Mac and iOS. So it's, it's no matter what device I'm on, I can save things to Pinboard and then come back to it from any other device. So the main thing that, I, that I've been using that for, I send out a mailer every Friday um, to a group of teachers um, and I just send them like videos and images, like links that I've come across that I think might be interesting to their students. Um, and so Pinboard just gives me a way where um, anytime I'm like going through my RSS feed or Twitter or, or on the web, I can quickly save anything that I think might be interesting to kids. And then once a week, I can come back to that list and grab five of them, make the mailer, and then send it off in MailChimp. And that may be something where you bring in your virtual assistant. Yes, he handles the MailChimp side of that. So I do something kind of similar. I, I use Pinboard for, I do a week in review post on my blog. And so every time I come across something that's interesting, either in my RSS feed or on a website that I'm to be browsing or something through Twitter, I save it to Pinboard. And then Pinboard has this neat linked role that uh, I use on my blog. So I have this thing called a reading list on my blog that just pulls things from my Pinboard account. So if you want to go see my recent pins, you can go to katiefloyd.com and click on leading, reading list and see them. But then I go through every Sunday and I kind of pick the best of and use it for my weekend review. I really haven't found a way to automate that process yet. So I'm still kind of going in by hand and and picking, other than automating the link role, which Pinboard provides a, a, a JavaScript for, I really haven't found a good way to to automate taking it from Pinboard and sending it somewhere else. Or are you doing all that by hand or have you found some kind of automation that, that I haven't found yet? Uh, no, I mostly do it by hand. Um, I use an app called Spillo on the Mac um, and that's just like a front end, um, which I think makes it a little faster to go through and search and pull out links that I'm interested in. Um, but I think I think you can get like an RSS feed off of the different tags. So, I mean, that might be one way to automate it. And then I use, um, it's called Pinner on iOS. And then that just hooks up. You can use it as like an extension. 
and then just send things to pin uh, to pinboard really quickly from just about any app. You, UI, I noticed uh, in our in our discussions earlier, you're a user of GoodNotes as well. Yes, I love GoodNotes. There is a growing list of Mac Power users listeners that that swear by this application, and I've now installed it. Um, I haven't used it as much as I'd like to. Uh, so tell us what's so great about GoodNotes. You know, it's something that I had I had bought this app like back when I had my first iPad, and I was when I was still in the classroom, and I was trying to figure out if I could use the iPad and you know project notes onto um, the overhead. But it really didn't become something I I used until I got this iPad Pro with the pencil. Um, and it's just it's this great like PDF app where you can bring PDFs in um, and mark them up and highlight them uh, and and do sketches, um, or you can just use it as like a note taking app. Yeah, you don't have to bring PDFs; you can just write on the page as well. Yeah, so you can yeah you can have blank paper, or you can create all these different lined templates or graph paper templates. Um, but it just works really well with the pencil and I think it has great like handwriting support. You can go back and search, um, and it will take the handwritten notes and you can, you can do a text search on everything that you've written by hand. So, so I've been using that a lot, um, when I'm preparing it for, uh, preparing for presentations. Um, sometimes I'll go through and get a bunch of, uh, like research papers and then, I can go through and highlight and, you know, circle text and just like I had printed it out. Um, and then, you know, then you can go back and search if you need to. Um, but it just, it's such an easy way to keep all of these PDFs together. Um, and then it gives me a way to mark it up and then use those highlighted sections for later. So, yeah, it's funny because I, I, when I, looking back, we've had a lot of people that recommend this app and many of them have been teachers. I think this is a very popular app among teachers. Yeah. And I think if you, yeah, if you are ever reading like academic papers, they're always PDFs and they're always a little bit hard to read. <laughs> so it's useful to be able to zoom in and, you know, have all that pinch to zoom functionality. And then if I'm at a conference, it's what I use if I'm uh, taking notes and, you know, I'll do this thing where I take a picture of their slide with the iPad's camera, and then you can just bring that picture straight into GoodNotes and write up uh, directly on the photo. And then I also saw that you're using Things quite a bit. Yeah, Things has been my like to-do and uh, project management system. Um, so, so it's I think it's really useful, especially on the iPad. Um, and it's, it's just kind of how I keep track of everything I'm doing. Uh, probably my favorite thing about it is just being able to set dates um, so so things will come up automatically. And so I can open up things and it, it will usually have like the, the, the to-dos that I have to get done uh, for this day. So it, it really helps me keep track of things and not miss deadlines. Now, we have been longtime OmniFocus users, and we probably talk about that more than any other task management system on the show. So in order to kind of give some perspective from the other side, can you talk a little bit about how things is set up and, and how that, I don't know if you're familiar with OmniFocus or how that differs as a task management system or basically what, what the interface is like and how, how does it work for you? Or what about it delights you maybe is the question. How, how does it work for you? So I think I went with things mostly because it was cheaper than uh, getting into the OmniFocus world. That's fair. But I've, I've tried OmniFocus, and I think what I like about things is that it's a lot simpler. Um, so I don't, I'm not using it f that much in terms of like the full getting things done. Um, 
like mindset. So for me, it's, it's mostly just a way to have these recurring, um, tasks that I have to do like every week or every month. Um, it, it helps me make sure that I'm on top of, if I have to get back to somebody, I'll put it in things. Uh, so it just becomes like a central place for me to be able to uh, stay on top of all the different things that I have to do. Um, I think they've been kind of slow to update. Um, but when they do update, it feels like they've done a lot. Uh, so it feels very fresh. Um, it's, I think it's fun to use on the iPad because you can slide around and, and delete things. Um, I do wish that it had some way to like send tasks to people. So as I've started to move towards having a virtual assistant, um, things is not useful. So that's, that's a, that's something that I'm struggling with is, you know, what do I do if I'm, if I want somebody else to do a task, like, does that go into, into my today to do list or, you know, do I send it to them in some other way? And then, and then I'm worried about having multiple um, apps to check. So that's a struggle that I'm having with things. Yeah, it's hard, you know, because the best tool for managing your own tasks isn't necessarily the best tool for team-based management. And, um, and then you got to figure out where, what works for you. Uh, you, you know, one of the things we talked about is you, you've got an interesting fixation, I'll call it, with some of these apps that deal with screen shades and, and screen. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the, the apps you've got on your Mac to, to deal with the color schemes. So I use Flux, which I, I think is pretty popular, um, which just changes the like tone of the screen as it gets later so that you don't have the blue screen um, as you get later into the night. It starts to give a kind of a yellow shade. So it's you know a little more pleasing to look at. And I think it's supposed to help you in terms of like falling asleep so that your brain knows that it's nighttime. All right. So I, I got to have a rant on this one for a minute. Okay. The, uh, so I first heard about this app years and years ago, Brett Terpstra, our pal told, Oh, you got to use flux. It'll change your life. It's so much better. And, and so what it does is you're right. It takes the blue color out of the monitor as you get later in the day. And I've tried it two or three times and I cannot get into this app because I, a lot of times I end up working into the night and my screen is orange. And I know you can, there's sliders to kind of reduce the amount of orangeness, but it just gets, I find it really um, distracting uh, to see that. I'm curious, David, do you use Night Shift on your iOS devices? No, I don't. I don't like it. I just don't like the, it doesn't work for me. I don't know. you're the problem. Yeah, but I, I do, when I lay in bed, I fall asleep very quickly. So I apparently I'm, I'm okay with that, but. Maybe if it was harder for me to fall asleep, I'd be more inclined to do it. But but generally, I just really dislike these apps. <laughs> I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like I don't even notice that it's changed it to this orange shade. And then if I turn it off, it's like shocking to me how blue the screen is at night. So I, I'm kind of the opposite where I don't even notice that it's doing its magic. But but I really like it. I actually even jailbroke my iPhone once so that I could get Flux onto the iPhone. So, yeah, there, there was a brief period where you could have done that. <laughs> yeah, so I was very excited when it kind of became built in. What about you, Katie? Where do you stand on this, uh, this uh, color adjustment? I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. I was like, yeah, whatever, okay. And I just let it run on my, my iPhone because I think that was the default setting. Was it? OS 9, iOS 9, iOS 10. I don't remember. When, and I think it was in the middle of 9. It was like 9.2 or something. Yeah, it was, I think it was in the middle. Um, 
And I just let it, whatever. It didn't bother. I think the first day or so that it came out, I thought, yeah, that's a little orangey. That's that's weird. But I remember as soon as I turned it off, I, I had the same experience as Ian. I was like, whoa, this is blinding my eyes. So I've left it on ever since, and it's been fine. I, I think I would be certainly open to it on my Mac. I think the fact that it's a third-party app makes me feel a little weird about it. I I don't know. I On one hand, I'd like Apple to, to bake it in as an option, but on the other hand, I realize that that certainly creates issues for third-party developers because, you know, Sherlock... I, I think it's perfectly safe to run it. I, I'm not worried about that, but I, I could not get it balanced. I, I tried to like turn down the effect of it and I just, I just never worked for me. Then the the ultimate killer for me was then I was working one night late on a screencast and my screen was turning orange. And then I realized I was shooting video of this orange screen <laughs> and, and I had lost like an hour's worth of work because I wasn't paying attention. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, that's just it. Flux is gone. <laughs> so I haven't. That's, that surprises me. Would it have actually recorded the orange screen? Um, I believe it did. Um, but but maybe it was just displaying it with the orange screen. <laughs> I look back I at it. I think that you can capture the screen without the effect because yeah. I do a lot of like screen grabs yeah. with Flux on. And I, I don't think that it shades it. Yeah. So I may be wrong about that, but either way, I, I just was not a fan of the, of the way that it, it flipped my screen color, but I, I think I might be an outlier. If you're listening to the show and you work into the night and you find yourself kind of wired and it's hard to go to sleep, I can tell you Brett Terpstra swears by it. He says that this app makes it possible for him to work into the night where before he would, his brain would just be with all the, I guess the blue color has an effect on you that like wants you to wake up. So then it's really hard for him to go to sleep where when he runs flux, it takes a lot of the blue out of the screen. And when he goes to sleep, he can get to sleep a lot faster. So, I mean, I'm not arguing with the science, but for me, it just never worked. Yeah. And then the other screen coloring app that I use is called Shades. And uh, I use that on the plane if I'm if I'm working on my Mac. And it just it allows you to darken the screen beyond what the hardware keyboard uh, would let you do. So you can you can get it down, especially if you're like working at night on a plane, you can bring the brightness way down and not like bother everybody around you. And then what I really like about it is it makes it harder for people to look at what you're doing. So I know sometimes people will start a conversation if they see like the presentation I'm working on. I hate that. Yeah. So (laughs) so I try to try to minimize that. Uh, So shades was I don't know. I got it a long time ago. I think it was a free third-party app. Um, but that one, it's it feels like it's not... I feel like it's not going to be working. Like I feel like in future updates of macOS, it's going to stop working because I notice like as, as I switch between apps, like Shades will turn off for a second and then turn back on. So I don't know if there's much of a future for this app. <laughs> it's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah, but I really like it just for using on a plane. Okay, and to, to complete your trilogy of uh, screen-related apps, um, you, you told me you're into window management on your Mac. How, how do you do that? Yeah, so I have this app called Moom, and Moom uh, lets you assign keyboard shortcuts. Um, and so the way that I mostly use it is um, I can make an app go like half screen with just using the keyboard shortcuts. And then it makes it easy to have two apps open side by side and they both take up exactly half the screen. So, uh, so to me, it kind of makes the Mac feel like an iPad where you can have two apps open at the same time with no like overlap or other windows on top. 
And it has a lot of, you can customize like the size um, and assign all these different keyboard shortcuts. So it's very flexible. Um, but I mostly use it for doing this like half, uh, half screens, or you can use it to go full screen really easily. Yeah, I, I am a, I'm a believer in Moom too. I know there's a ton of these apps on the app store that allow you to manage your windows. And even Apple has now built into OS 10. Um, oops, Mac OS. They have built into Mac OS <laughs> a way to have these split screens. But the one that Apple does is kind of is fiddly to get it to work. And, and Moom is so much better. Like you can have multiple on one screen and just very quickly switch between them. Uh, I believe it's Mini Tricks is the manufacturer of this app, and I highly recommend it. Uh, and, and like he said, it's super customizable. If you use it with Better Touch Tool, which is another app that I I love, you can like you can assign hotkeys to it. Like if you've got on your trackpad, like you have Force Press on your trackpad. Uh, on mine, if I do the lower left corner, it takes the current window and puts on the left side of the screen, and the same for the right. And I've got a couple other like tricks I do that way. Um, it's a very uh, it's a very nice app. To if you if you're fiddly about windows you can even same save like a scheme for a while i had one when i podcasted where it had safari at so many pixels and then skype and then the various recording apps and everything just laid out so when i started a podcast i push one button and it organized my windows for me like magic yeah it's it's one of those apps where if it's not if it's not running i notice it really quickly are you into that, Katie? Are you uh, are you like hyper sensitive about your windows, or do you just like throw them all over the screen? I wouldn't say I throw them all over the screen. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if you're Starfleet or or um or um, you know like Romulan when it comes to this stuff. I d- I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I, I I tend not to have a gazillion windows open at a time, so for me it's not an issue. I have a very neat screen and desktop. Or I I think it would be Romulan or Klingon. <laughs> you know, Klingons would just like sp- sp- spray them all over the screen, right? <laughs> oh boy. So, Ian, why don't you tell people a little bit about where they can find you? And if they're interested in some of the programs that you've set up, who, what's your target audience? Who are those for? And, and how can you help people? Yeah, so um, I'm I'm mostly in working with uh, teachers who who work with uh, gifted and talented kids. Um, my main website is birdseed.com, and that's bird with a Y. Uh, and then on Twitter, I'm uh, Birdseed Gifted, and um, I have a whole bunch of different, like, smaller websites that people can find through Birdseed.com. And then, what would you say really is uh, what teachers of what type of what what would a teacher be looking for um, to come to your website, and, and how can you help them? I know my brother and his wife are are both teachers, and uh, why should I send them to you? And and what kind of information do you share? So for the teachers that are listening to our show, um, what kind of resources are there? Yeah, so I focus on um, providing lessons and tools uh, to help uh, teachers work with students who are beyond the textbook or beyond um, the grade level curriculum. Uh, And there's just not a lot out there for those kids. Uh, And teachers really struggle with finding uh, like age appropriate, but also challenging materials um, to keep those students engaged. So that's become kind of my niche is um, finding ways for teachers to easily work with students who are more advanced. And that's so important because if those kids aren't challenged, they can they can easily lose interest. There can be behavioral problems. There can be all sorts of things. And uh, we really want to make sure that we keep those kids engaged. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, Ian, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Everybody, you can find Ian over at birdseed.com. He's also on Twitter as birdseedgifted, at birdseedgifted. And um, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Mac Power Users, or you can send us feedback to feedback at macpowerusers.com. I want to thank our sponsors this week, my Node, 1Password, and MacPop, and we will see you all next week. Thank you.